Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. <laughs> Ladies, hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. Victor is the star and namesake. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor is a farmer, a classicist, a military historian, a syndicated columnist, Political pundit, you mind being called that, Victor? I think stop there, was... stop, stop, stop. Okay, okay. Well, I'll stop. <laughs> Enough. We have uh, the last show we recorded. Victor was mostly about guys, and I think today's program will be mostly about ladies. And we have uh, we have uh, Jean Pierre, uh, Karine Jean Pierre, the president's press secretary, making some defenses of the president, and then we have maybe Michelle Obama to talk about, and Kamala Harris, the new guns are, and other things. So let's get to, by the way, it won't be strictly ladies, because if we have time, Victor, there's this just shocking story out of Baltimore, and it's a um, public school education system. But let's get let's start off with the the White House, and we'll get your thoughts, Victor, right after these important messages. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, the headline here from the Daily Mail, quote, the president was speaking from his heart, end quote, Karine Jean-Pierre's bizarre defense when asked if Biden, 80, repeating the same story word for word within minutes is a concern. So, Victor, it's just the latest of these kind of things. I believe, um, oh, gosh, at the U.N. the other day, he, he pulled one of his walking away too early. He was in a at a um, press event with the president of Brazil, kind of doddered off. So we have this. What is I, I kind of a little bit feels me. For, I feel for her uh, having to say something positive about these endless string of inanities. So we have your your thoughts on that, Victor. But also there's another. Daily Mail story. It's Ted Cruz kind of ruminating on on things democratic, given what the president is like. You know, who's to, who can replace him on the Democratic ticket? And he makes the case for Michelle Obama as the as the one person that probably could thread the needle and maybe even win an election. So, Victor, your your thoughts first about the latest Biden. Uh, goofiness and your thoughts about Ted Cruz's thoughts. Well, he lies. So, I mean, we, I don't want to get back into Charlotte, but everything he said about Charlotte was a lie about what Donald Trump said and things. Donald Trump did say there was extremists on both sides, but there were good people on both sides. That was true. And uh, then he repeats it, but He's, he does that with everything. The, the, the point is that if you go back and look at pictures of Joe Biden and campaigning in 2020 and you look at him today, it doesn't look like the same person. And he was bad then. I mean, he looks he has no color in his face. He has this. Have you noticed that frown that he has? He's angry. Yes. And then he he squints and then he once in a while he's whispers, but he shouts, he yells, he just. It's it's aggravating and he's mean spirited. All of his stories and rants either have two themes. It's that Joe is the Jesus Christ of the modern age, usually in some kind of pathetic teenage macho relation somehow that he relates that he hit somebody or he told somebody off or something like that. Or um, the other theme is that you don't know what it, you have no idea what he's talking about. It doesn't there's no syntax, there's no grammar. And to the extent you can decipher it, it's usually, as we said earlier, it's not factual. Yeah. We're back to he got arrested in South Africa for civil rights demonstrations or he was in the top third of his class. All that stuff is just made up. And so the question is, and why is he here? And, and I think to understand our dilemma, we have to remember what happened. There was a primary in 2020. Hillary did not run because she kind of flipped out and went crazy after her loss. So there was a group of candidates. Everybody remembers them. And they were all radical. 
There was Bernie Sanders, the socialist. There was Pete Buttigieg, the socialist, sanctimonious, you know, self-righteous fop. There was Elizabeth Warren, the high cheekbones, Pocahontas. You didn't build that. There was Cory Booker, Spartacus. There was Castro. I don't, I had to learn Spanish, but now I'm a La Razista. And you put them together, Jack, and there was nothing there. And they were not going to beat Donald Trump, even with the help of the media and the COVID lockdowns. And Joe Biden had lost these early primaries. And he was going into South Carolina and he was going to lose. And you go back and look at what NPR and others said. They could not believe it. Jim Clyburn came out and said blacks should vote, which I think was 40 percent of the electorate. And he won. And then Super Tuesday came up a little bit later and every single person started to drop out. Warren dropped out. Bernie dropped out. Buttigieg walked out. They all dropped out. And then there was he won Super Tuesday and he was coronated. And then that was the Faustian bargain. That we give Joe the nomination. He acts as if he's Joe, old, old Joe from Scranton. We all know him from the last 50 years. He's a blowhard, but he's our blowhard. And he's a working class lunch much at Joe. And he used to, you know, be pretty conservative. So that was all a lie, but that's what they told us. And we're going to put him in the basement. You can't go out, Joe, and we'll outsource the campaign because of COVID. And that's what they did. And then they got elected and they turned over the appointments the judicial selections to the Obamas and Bernie and maybe Elizabeth Warren and the squad, the hard left. And there's, that's where we are. So now has anything changed? That's my point. Now, who is new on the scene other than Gavin Newsom, maybe Josh Shapiro? So they're still stuck. And they feel that there's no alternative to him, but he's not an alternative himself. So then just as in 2020, when Michelle was mentioned, she was mentioned in 2006. Rush Limbaugh, he had it kind of right. He used to, in his broadcast, say this all the time about Michelle. Watch Michelle. But she has high negatives. She's very popular, but she has very high negatives. She didn't run in 2020, uh, I think, because they hadn't made their first $100 million yet. With Remember, they were Netflix consultants. Right. And I don't think that worked. I think they were finally let go. I don't can they think of one series or movie or project they did that anybody watched. And then I think they tarnished their brand. I mean, what was she going to say that she's going to venture out of her Martha's Vineyard estate or her Oahu estate or her Colorama estate and say, my girls who were always in the news with fashion, beautiful fashion clothes with boyfriends in the nightlife, they were going to, she going to say again and again, my girls are in danger because of white privilege, you know, when we know that 95% of blacks that are harmed are harmed by other blacks on the street. I mean, all this nonsense she says from her Oprah like perch, it's going to, I don't think people want to hear it, but I may be mistaken. But the fact that they're mentioning her is because of the dearth of candidates that they've had. It's a geriatric party. And I mean, they had Feinstein and Schumer and Pelosi and Biden, and that's who they have. That Those were dinosaurs from that old Bill Clinton era. And that's how they got elected, by going to the middle and faking it out like they were moderates. But now with the new, the new left that are Jacobins, they... They don't have very many people that can run in the mainstream unless they do this two-step where they get a Hillary or a Joe Biden 
these ossified, calcified creatures from the 70s and 80s, and then mask their radical agenda. And then the left votes for them on the idea that they're just functionaries or constructs or veneers. So here we go again. And now the problem is the veneer is not even a veneer anymore. He's decrepit and he's corrupt. And his record, their record, it's not Joe's record, it's their record. They were the ones that pushed it on the border, on energy, on crime, on foreign policy, on the economy is a disaster. And it's not me saying that. It's the people who pull on all of those issues and in an aggregate for Joe Biden. So what are they going to do, Jack? So that's why they talk about Michelle. But there was a reason why Michelle didn't run before. And first of all, last time she was in a campaign without being muzzled, it was, I've never been proud of this country. They raised the bar on me. This is a downright mean country. Or when she was first lady, somebody in the store asked me to pick up a package and I'm just treated, you know, this, I'm treated that. Never had some, never had so someone been brought up solidly middle class, given complete affirmative action, set aside consideration to Princeton, ditto Harvard Law School, ditto her job in a law, a job in a Chicago law firm, ditto her, quote, community relations at the hospital in Chicago. Never had somebody given such indulgences and been so bitter about it, is what I'm right. saying. Yeah. Christopher Hitchers, Hitchens, you remember, wrote and said that she was she wrote her Princeton B.A. thesis in a language unknown to man or something. <laughs> and so he sent it to me when he wrote that article. On right. PDF, and I read it and it was basically how black alumni should create a culture of reaffirmation for black students who are the victims of racism at Princeton. But you wouldn't know that from the language. It was somebody who's half literate, who's using polysyllabic words from postmodern, post-structuralist stuff, right. you know, and it, it's just incomprehensible. And so I don't know. I mean, I think she's in the same place as Kamala Harris, that she's a powerful black woman who's educated with an advanced degree and she fits and pushes all the buttons, but no one's ever actually seen Michelle in a leadership role. She's not right. elected to anything. And well, also, to the degree that she sounded off during the eight years of Obama, they either had to put her on ice at particular times or turn her into a senior statesman. In other words, they told her people will like you if you just sort of, you know, praise Barack, praise the country, and don't get into your real politics. And she did that the last year and then made a fortune on her memoir. And so I don't think that she will be able to do that as a candidate. I yeah, think she'd I, be under a lot of scrutiny and she would editorialize. And pretty soon in the post George Floyd, you know, five years into George Floyd, uh, right. systemic racism, that it wouldn't be a welcome message for most people. This well, politics she, she, of grievance. She, she may have resented whatever baggage comes along with being living in the White House, you know, being the first lady. Um, she's got she's certainly living La Vida. Um, I mean, it's just a great life. Right. You mentioned all the the bounty they've they've picked up. I think they're but worth I, a half a billion dollars. 
I mean, yeah, yeah. And they have three estates, a four if you count their Chicago estate. Very nice home. And they don't remember he told us, I'm not saying it, and our listeners are not saying it. He said in an interview, What's your biggest problem? He said, I'm lazy. And he was lazy as a law professor at Chicago. He never finished his book on contracts. He there's pretty good evidence that Bill Ayers ghost wrote sure. Dreams for My Father. We know now that Dave, David Garrell pointed out, the biographer, that it's not an autobiography. It's a mythography. He made up stuff and just put anything in there. And it has nothing really to do with his actual life as far as being truthful and accurate. It can be impressionistic. That's fine. But it's not an autobiography. Yeah. I mean, here's my cop. You, you have three girlfriends or maybe boyfriends. You never know what's true. <laughs> Obama's like, but he, he, you know, he has composites of actual. Frank Marshall Davis. There was an article the other day that he was basically a pornographer. He has one complaint, and that is that his grandfather thought that he needed to resonate with the black community and that he would drop him off as a teen in the custody for a day or two with Frank Marshall Davis, the communist black activist. But that was a veneer. He was actually a pornographer and a pervert. And that wasn't good for that grandfather to allow anybody near that guy. And I think that might have been traumatic. And there's hints of that in um, David Garrow's work that he points that out. And then I think in the later editions, Obama had uh, excised or taken out all mention of uh, Marshall Davis, who was under with, with a pseudonym, he, and, and they excised him, Trotskyized him from the Obama biography. But, but my final thought, you know, back on Michelle, though, is like, you know, I, Michelle Obama. Um, if someone handed you, Victor, the presidency, you might say, I don't want to be president. I just, I have zero interest in this. And I think to be president, you have to want to be president. You know, Kamala Harris, like her or not, and I'm on the not side, she wants to be president. And so did everyone else who, who campaigned. So as, uh, I think Ted Cruz is right in, in one way, if, uh, in a, a academic sense, if Michelle Obama might actually be the most appealing person, a surprise thing that would rally uh, Democrats if Biden stepped down, which, you know, he's so freaking. Uh, uh, Her attraction would be what right? Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was a polarizing figure, but the subtext was you would get Bill Clinton back in the White House. And yes, he was. Not liked by a lot of people, but people remember that for three years you had a balanced budget. Give him credit. And his eight years cumulatively, he had hardly any debt compared to the Bushes or or Trump or anybody. Give him his credit. Most of it's due, I think, to Newt Gingrich. But the point is, that's what the bargain. So for the left, if you vote for Michelle, yes, she's polarizing. Yes, she's like Hillary. Yes, she'll say things, but you will get the beloved Barack back in. And he said that. He said that his dream, he said that in an interview, would be to phone in the presidency and not have to go through the ritualistic aspects of it. And that's what he's doing now with the Biden's surrogacy. And I think he thinks that he would do the same thing with his wife. And that's the appeal to her that you get Barack. It's yeah. not an appeal to me. It's a nightmare. But for a lot of people, it is. And I still don't think she's going to run, though, because she would she just she's one of these people who the more that she gets into the jet set 
and that upper, upper, upper 1% with these beautiful homes, private jets, beautiful cars, entertainment, gets to know all of the celebrities, the more angry she gets. Like this, they're still thinking that I'm, you know, I didn't earn this, or they're still, they, they, she's still got that bitterness. And that's why every once in a while she comments on the political scene. And it's always from a tone of bitterness and anger. And I don't but, think people are going to, that would wear very quickly, but. Yeah, she's uh, more of a uh, vinegar than honey uh, person. I just remember the school lunches and something about, I think she was down on ice cream even for, <laughs> for, yeah, for mean, a bit. Like who could be, who could be anti ice cream in, in any country? Well, anyway, Victor, that's, uh, thanks for your, th- your thoughts on that. But I mentioned, uh, okay, we move on. She should have got mad at John Kerry because his family's come, weren't they were making munchables and all that stuff for school lunches? Oh, the, yeah, there was a piece about the Heinz company. Ago. Yeah, they're making a fortune on unhealthy, right? Unhealthy. Yeah, so uh, Michelle should go after John Kerry. Yeah, if she can he catch him to. on his uh, surf surf yeah. boat or or yacht or whatever the hell private jet. Well, Victor, let's let's uh, pick up with uh, the aforementioned uh, Kamala Harris, who is now going to be the the gun czar, and we'll get your thoughts on that, Victor, right after these important messages. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Hey, Victor has a website. It's called The Blade of Perseus. You'll find the address as victorhanson.com. Go there. You'll find the links to all the pieces Victor has written for his American, American Greatness, syndicated columns, links, and the archives for these podcasts, links to his books. You'll also find links to these other articles that have this little black box that says ultra. What's that? Click on it. Unless you're a subscriber, you're not going to be able uh, to read the ultra articles. Victor writes two or three of these a week. They're exclusive to the blade of Perseus. You should subscribe. $5 gets you in the door. It's $50 for, for the year. If you're a fan of Victor's writing and you're not reading his ultra articles, you are depriving yourself uh, friends um, also, when you go there uh, uh, now, and I just, uh, as I was about to read this, Victor, I stupidly uh, killed my computer screen. But uh, there's a link to your, used to be a link up there for The Dying Citizen, which was your most recent book, but brand new uh, is the link to your forthcoming yes, book. They yeah. just put a link on it, and I'm doing the line editing right now and copyright. Crappie editing, I think, will be 
next month and then it's going to come out. The maps are done. I have a very good assistant who's doing the maps. Morgan May, May 7th, Victor. That's yeah. the date. Yes, May 7th. And um, it's called the end of everything. It's about wars when wars end up. I think it will be timely because we are now engaged as a proxy with Ukraine and we have China and Taiwan looming. And it's a reminder that wars can start with certain presumptions, but they don't necessarily end that way. And on rare occasions, they end with the existential destruction of the entire language, people, culture. And I take some, you know, I, I look at some case histories, this, the conquest of the Aztecs in Mexico, uh, Scipio, Emilianus's leveling, and I guess you'd call it annihilation, obliteration, destruction of ancient Carthage, Alexander the Great, completely wiping out Thebes. And these are not just victories. These are situations where, for a variety of reasons, which I try to catalog and systematize and discuss in the epilogue, because they're reoccurring throughout history, they go in and they kill as many people as they can. They enslave in the ancient world all the non-combatants are sold into slavery and then they utterly destroy the site in some cases. So there's nothing, everything about that culture disappears and it's possible. And I, in the epilogue, I talk, you know, when you hear Iran talking of Israel as a one bomb state right. or some of the people in the Turkish world, what they say about a landlocked and very small Armenia or the Kurds, uh, or what Mr. Erdogan said not too long ago about, about the Greeks. There's only 12 million Greeks. There's 50,000 square miles of Greece. And you hear him say one morning they're going to wake up and there's, they're going to see a, a flurry of missiles descending on Athens. And everybody discounts what Vladimir Putin and his thugs have been saying in Russia that we're going to be, if you keep doing it, we're going to start using tactical nuclear weapons. They said that he'll never do that. That's impossible. Don't count on it. He's already taken somewhere between 20. He's already driven out 25 to 30 percent of the Ukrainian population is no longer living in Ukraine. Right. And uh, this thing has no end in sight. So these things are not just historical artifacts is what I'm trying to say. And I, I, I look at history. It's mostly a, a study of annihilation. Right. In war, not through plague, not through earthquake, not through climate change, not through famine, but in war, when war descends into annihilation and why it does and how it does and what we should think about in the present to prevent it again. Well, you can do what I listeners do what I did. I clicked on the link and it took me, gave me a, a choice to pre-order the book. And, and that is exactly what I did. So on May 7th, I will be receiving uh, my copy. So, Victor, um, we'll, we'll, let's talk uh, about Kamala, but I just want to note, uh, thinking it, um, f as we were just talking about the 2024 Democratic presidential candidates, that Gavin Newsom, your governor, he vetoed a controversial gender identity bill that had been passed overwhelmingly by the progressive legislature. So I think Gavin Newsom is is uh, throwing a little olive yes. leaf of sorts to the to the uh, uh, to the uh, non-progressive voters. So, I, 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 inter interesting thing. But we should we, let's talk about Kamala Harris, yeah. that other great California. Yes. So, but the thing is, 
the more that he says he's not going to run, the more that he suddenly talks about the intolerable homeless population in San Francisco, or he goes down to the border and says it's intolerable for the first time in what, 20 years? I mean, this man was mayor for eight years of San Francisco. He was lieutenant governor for eight years. He's been governor for five years. So talking about 21 years, and now he's worried about fentanyl. And so now he wants to let everybody know that the lunatic legislature, the bike, it's a coastal legislature that runs it, left-wing people from the coastal quarter from San Diego to Berkeley. Now he's telling the country they're crazy and I'm not, I'm going to veto this idea that parents are not parents and takes a village to own a child, I guess. But it's very, you know, it's typical Gavin Newsom. Again, he's very impressive for 15 minutes. He looks good. He talks glibly. Right. He has rapid fire, good instincts. And after 50 minutes, that's the extent of his ideas and his mind. So then it's just a blank. I mean, it's just complete redundancy and just canned lines and ridiculousness that reflects what he's actually done. No person. Joel Kotkin has a really good article this week about him, and I think it's in the American mind. No person is more responsible for the destruction of California than Gavin Newsom. Jerry Brown has a lot of culpability, but if you look at every single issue that's destroying this state, the tax code, 13.3, the increase in sales tax, the highest gas tax in the nation, the open borders policy, 50, over 50% of births on Medi-Cal. If you look at the homeless, about half the country's homelessness, one third of all the welfare recipients are in California. 21% of the people like worse than Appalachia are below the poverty line. Right. You name it, crime, highest property crime rate in the country in San Francisco, his city. And the idea that he's going to run on that, as I said with Sammy, I guess his, his slogan will be, I'll do for the United States what I did for California. Yeah. So he, he's a toxic personality and he's a child of privilege. And anything he did prior to his political career was subsidized by the Getty family and the old white elite club of San Francisco, the old aristocracy dinosaurs. They gave him almost everything he needed, but he did not make it on his own. And he, he he's not a very impressive person, but he is glib. And he is a formidable political presence because of his age and his look and his glibness for about 15 minutes. Right. And then you start asking him questions and he's exhausted his pre-prepared rejoinders and he's an empty suit a hollow man well there's somebody who's hardly tolerable for 15 seconds and that's kamala harris that other great californian <laughs> so what, hear, what is it about california uh, nancy pelosi <laughs> or cicero of the west uh, here's the offices uh, under as vice president that Biden has tasked her with the border, which she's done such a great job. Pro-union task force, broadband, space. space are, was she space are too? Space are, voting rights, yes. vaccine tour, child tax credit, online harassment, and now the new yeah. one. Gun, yes. federal gun violence prevention. She is so, now the czar for this. So we know what Biden is doing. He's basically saying 
here's a unpopular topic, have Camilla do it. And then get another one when she fails and she fails then get another one and another one, and another one. And then she fires her staff. She yells, she leaks and that's her situation. But what she doesn't say is Joe Biden in 2020 before the convention in the mailstorm of the George Floyd mess said that he was going to pick a non-white male candidate. Most people assumed that that would be a black woman. So he, poor Andrew Cuomo was a heartthrob and he, he was upset because everybody thought he would get it. And so he was trapped in his identity politics prison and he looked around and he thought, hmm, Maxine Waters? No. The election denialist Stacey Abrams? No. Kamala, she's the senator. She's she's got a P. Her parents have PhDs. She's half black like Barack Obama. She seems attractive. She all point her and nobody ever did the homework and saw that she was she has a vocabulary of about 500 words and she is a child of two PhDs and privilege. And she spent an entire career laughing, giggling uh, in front of powerful men like Willie Brown. And they thought that she was sexy and cute and she never really did anything. She was given a, a prestigious board and a big salary in her 20s. And then she was city attorney, then county attorney and then. Just, you know, attorney general, and then she just ran on her identity politics uh, brand that she was the first. Sometimes she introduced herself as the first black woman as senator. Sometimes it was the first Asian woman as senator. Sometimes it right. was uh, that she, you know, was child of poverty and racism, as she said in the debate. And sometimes it was she was a child of brilliant parents with PhDs. It was whatever you needed. And that's how she got there. And now they and how she really got there, I think, is that the Biden team and there must be a Biden team, despite the fact that they're not running things, but they worry about Joe. They thought if you select her, you've got a Spiro Agnew insurance policy, because right. as you decline cognitively and as your corruption keeps up with you, they're not going to get rid of you because the Democratic Party will be embarrassed if she's president. I mean, and Tulsi Gabbard kicked her hiney um, up and down that stage in the debates. It was obvious she was a. Yeah, Tulsi Gabbard's got more intelligence and skill sets, than one finger than Kamala Harris. Yeah. And she she exposed her as a. She as did. A, she she had one moment when she called Joe Biden. I was that little girl that set up line that Joe Biden was a racist. It may be true given his uh, racist outburst over the last 30 years, but she was no victim is what I'm trying to say. And she right, tried to play right. that and then people exposed it. And then she, she didn't get one delegate. She raised a lot of Silicon Valley money, which also redirects the question, who are these people? When I was growing up, the nexus of power in California was Los Angeles. And that was because that was where the money was. That was the port of L.A. That was where the oil was. That was where the finance was. And that were conservative Democratic politicians and, you know, some Republicans. And then guess what happened? Silicon Valley came in in the 80s and 90s and 
at the millennium. They had nine, eventually nine trillion in market capitalization, and suddenly they merged with Bay Area politicians. So there was Barbara Boxer was energized, Diane Feinstein, Nancy Pelosi, Jerry Brown, Kamala Harris, and there you have it. And Willie Brown, and it was all Bay Area left wing, hard left, ran California. L.A. just kind of disappeared. It's politicians. It's never regained any currency. And they run the state. And they're an incestuous group of people that have academic liaisons with Berkeley and Stanford. And they have money from Silicon Valley. And that's who they represent, Silicon Valley. The Silicon Valley view of the world, radical green agenda, radical diversity agenda, defund the police, all of that crazy stuff comes from Silicon Valley billionaires and multimillionaires. And they get the money to these San Francisco politicians. That's who created her. And they wanted to use her as a mount megaphone for their political agenda. But they found out that she was inane and inert and she couldn't. So when she was fobbed off on Joe Biden, the country got her and what you do with her. So there's only one solution. You cannot get her off the ticket without offending the black community. Although I think that Jack is negotiable because I think if you look at surveys in the black community, they don't see her as a member of the black community, essentially, because she didn't really identify as being black. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's negotiable or controversial. Right. But the only way you can get rid of her is for Joe Biden to step down and to have an open primary. If he should run for re-election, I don't think he will. But if he should, he can't get rid of her. And that is a, as I said before, that's an FDR Henry Wallace situation where she will be president of the United States within a year if he, if he runs for re-election and wins. But have an open primary, she won't get one delegate, just like in 2000. Uh, 20. And that's the solution. So I think what you'll see is that they'll praise her to the skies. If Joe Biden has a stroke or if he, there's an email that says, thanks for the one million dollar bribe, Hunter. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. It matters nothing. They will keep him in office until his first term expires because they do not want her to run to be a vice pre, uh, vice president to president and much less as an incumbent in 2024. And then they will find a way to say, you know, Joe had a wonderful career. Maybe they'll give him the nomination. He'll step aside. Maybe they'll have an open comment. But that will deal with the Camilla problem. Yeah, I, I do think he's so nasty and um, fantasy is what has marked him for years. And a, a destructiveness is is what he seeks. That he's just going to say, "Screw you! I'm I'm running." He's not going to step aside. That's my my view. I, but I don't know if he'll step aside on his part. But I don't think he's going to be able to run. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Short and, of a stroke. Uh, well, he's one fall yeah. or one revealing email from right, right. Being, you know completely. Right. 
collapsed because he doesn't know where he is after any speech. He looks around. The president of Brazil, Lulu, looked a little angry at him. You know what I mean? Yes. He was rude. He He's not just senile, but he's rudely senile. And he whispers. He yells. They, there are certain rules with Joe. You have to have somebody as soon as he finishes to escort him off. You have to have a teleprompter with huge fonts and you cannot let him freelance for a second. You have to keep him under wraps until 10 in the morning. And after two, he's got to put a lid on it. And any you've got to get a pathological liar like Corinne Jean-Pierre to contextualize everything he says. Right. And I have a little bit of empathy. I, I find her obnoxious, but most presidents lie, but it's 10% of their corpus of things that they say in a given date with him it's everything and she's got to just sit there and right you have to lie about it all like to take the vietnam where he was there and then they started playing music over him talking like he was some oscar winner that had gone beyond his life <laughs> i've never seen that in my life where they gave the hook to a president Right. His own staff. I've never seen that. How do you put a good? How do you not? How do you lie about that? How do you? Uh, uh, well, that's the only thing you can. How do you look it? at the camera and say the border is secure? It's yeah. like that yeah. CNN reporter where flames are licking the sky, and he says it's been a largely peaceful day. Right. And it's the same thing. It's just an abject lie. Yeah. And she is. I mean, I, I guess she's going to get a CNN Jen Psaki like perch when she leaves, but. She's to so disgraced herself. Yeah. And, but on the other hand, it would be hard to, to defend anything he does. And I just don't, I think Jill is behind a lot of it, Jill Biden, but he's declining at a, a fantastic rate. I mean, it's just, right. It's sad to watch and what he's doing to the country on the national and international scene. What do, yeah. what do people say when they're going to coming to the United States? What do their preppers or handlers say to a Brazilian president or the Israeli prime minister? What do they, they say? Look, you're going to go here now and he doesn't know where he is. So when you're done speaking, don't be offended if he walks in the wrong direction or when you're together. Uh, he may say crazy things to you. Don't take them seriously. And when he's in a private conversation, he may not know who you are or fall asleep. Right? Yeah. But don't take this personally. Yeah. Leader of the free world, Victor. And this, hey, is, this comes after a media and left wing environment that said we have no tolerance for anybody like Donald Trump, who walks down a ramp at the academy a little slow in the rain. And we have no tolerance if Donald Trump repeats himself a couple of times because we're going to make him take the Monterey uh, Montreal Cognitive Assessment or we're going to get an FBI director and an assistant attorney general. We're going to get him on a wire and get this guy because he's stark raving mad. And if I'm Mark Milley, I got to call my communist counterpart and tip him off that Trump is crazy. These are the people right now that are telling us that they're not going to say a word about Joe Biden's cognitive failings. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen that, you know, we created this hypercritical environment in Washington that Donald Trump, because of his age or his his behavior was insane and should be removed. And remember, 
Dr. Right. Bandy Yee from from Yale that said that he should have a intervention with a straitjacket and she testified. Schumer brought her in to testify to the Senate that Trump was crazy. And I think it was Rosa Brooks, 11 days, 12 days into the Trump administration said, we got to get rid of him. We can do it with a impeachment. We can do it with 25th Amendment. We can do it with a coup, but we got to get rid of him. And, th- and nothing about Biden. These same people. Victor, we're going to ruin the day. We are ruining the day, not future. We are. Victor, we've got two more things. Uh, I hope we can get your thoughts on uh, before this uh, episode ends. And one has to do with, so we'll keep talking about women. Let's talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has joined uh, some of the uh, GOP anti-Kevin McCarthy malcontents about this this whole uh, government shutdown. I'd like to get your thoughts, Victor. I'm sure our listeners want to hear them. Well, you know, what are your thoughts about the current politics? How is Kevin McCarthy doing? The possibility of a shutdown. Are these Republican, uh, these five or six uh, Republican outliers uh, helping or harming? Your thoughts on this, Victor, after these important messages. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, big fight right now as we're talking, maybe resolved by the day this uh, podcast airs. But Kevin McCarthy has, um, as he had at the beginning, a number of House members from the Republican caucus uh, breaking his stones and they're breaking them now. And what are your thoughts? There's a big controversy about shutdowns. Usually people don't like them, especially they're getting Social Security checks etc or they can't go to yosemite or yellowstone whatever but there are people who say that eventually the the party that shuts down the government gets increased popularity i don't believe that so my point is this right now there's one huge and i think our former colleague at national review michael daugherty wrote about it there is one great issue that's unambiguous it is a winner for the republican party and that is we have no border and we're going to ruin and bankrupt the united states with eight million people this is 50 million people already are not born in the united states and and they have deliberately destroyed that border and they've even dismantled the state of texas's efforts to put bob wire to stop it they being the federal government that's the issue right now so 
why would you shut down the government and allow the left to ignore that and then turn on you and say, what will the left say? They're going to say, well, okay, Joe Biden is reckless spending, but Donald Trump, he almost added, what, six or seven trillion dollars to the deficit, to the aggregate debt. He ran trillion dollar. We don't care about COVID or any of that. Just look at it. So it, I don't see how it's a winning issue. That's not to say it's not an important issue to restrain f federal spending, but they're not in a position to do that if they don't run the, the, the Senate and they don't own the White House and they don't. They have one half, one half of the House, which is you can, there's three branches of government. So there's the White House, there's the Supreme Court, and they have half of the House and they don't have the Senate. And with the half of the House of ha half of a half, one quarter of a third. Right. How are they going to implement a sustained right. policy to restrain spending? I don't see how they do it. Right. Unless they're going to keep getting bad publicity by shutting down services and stuff. And yet I admire them for being worried because it's not sustainable where we are at 30, going to be $33 trillion in debt. And historically, there's a, there's a solution to that. If you look at what the Romans did or what happened in Renaissance Italy or in Germany after World War One or in Argentina in the 1990s or in Greece and at the the meltdown after 2008. And we know what it is. You either have to inflate, inflate the currency as Germany did in the twenties and pay back what the government owes to bondholders and worthless money. Or you have to renounce the debt and just say, you know what? You guys are all wealthy. You have UST bills, you Chinese, you, you screw us over. You have $8 trillion and we're not going to pay you. And that ruins your credit rating for good. And you're basically over as a credible nation if you do that. Or the third is you appropriate wealth and you say, and I've read this. I think you have too. with academics on the left are saying, well, we'll just go to anybody who has over two or three million dollars in a 401k. And we'll say, you know what? For every hundred thousand dollars we take, we'll give you one year of Social Security credit and they'll expropriate private capital. Right. They have to do something at some point. It's unsustainable. And I think they'll probably that's why the inflation is. They thought that they could just keep spending and then there would be inflation and they would pay off the debts and cheaper daughter. And that's what they've done, Jack, for the last four or five years with zero interest. And even at an inflation rate of two percent, when you are getting zero interest, you're either not making anything uh if you have 2% passbook interest right. and the inflation rate's two and a half or it's two, yeah. you're not making anything on your money and you're right. losing the value when it goes higher than that. Yeah. So they were taking money that way. And uh, it, it's so they have to do something, but shutting down the government's not going to do it when you have one half of one third of the government. Yeah. Well, Victor, time for one more topic, and this is uh, non-political, and it's a headline from as my usual one of my usual sources is of course the Daily Mail, 
This is so dis- disconcerting and disappointing. The headline, Fury, Fury as zero children, zero, not a single one. At 13 Baltimore State Schools pass math exam. In other words, nobody passed the math exam. And parent group calls on the leaders to sh- uh, to shut down. Yeah, 13 high school, high, uh, 13 Baltimore high schools didn't have a single student who qual- tested and who scored proficient in math. Um, a, a staggering 74.5% scored at the lowest possible score. And one last thing, Victor, um, the Baltimore school system received $1.6 billion last year. So this is not about spending, but uh, this is failure on epic level, not only for these individual. When we play a game kids, and ask our the, listeners. The future is this, this yeah. is bleak. Okay. So there's nobody that knows any math in the Baltimore school system. Okay. So we have two ways of explaining this and advocacy of a redress of this. And I'll give you the two alternatives and let's see what the listeners can think, which one we're likely to pursue. So choice one is we say the following. This failure is due to the systemic racism in society, A, and B, the questions on these math tests and to the extent that people are commiserately failing on analytical and English uh, test verbal, it's because a particular hierarchy poses and formulates questions that reflect their own privilege. In other words, that young African-American people in the school system of Baltimore are dealing with systemic racism, and then they have to take exams made by white people that inherently, maybe not, it may not even be known to white people, but they're inherently racist. And to ask a young African-American child who has to put up with all this racism to take a test that's designed by somebody with privilege is not unfair. Or three, in today's modern world, mathematics is not necessary. So we are making African-Americans, young kids that have all sorts of challenges in their landscape and environment to artificially jump through hoops because we quote unquote demand math quote unquote when it's entirely irrelevant. And that's one approach. Or here's the other approach, and we'll see which one will be likely. The other approach is that the entire teaching cadre in that school district, as all inner city school district, is unionized. They don't give a damn about their students. They're overpaid. They're tenured. And they have been they have a dignity from the teachers unions. And there's no accountability. A. B. When you have an inner city culture where 85, 75 to 85 percent of the fathers are not in the home, but a mother is raising children by herself, usually on social and um, economic, legal housing assistance from the government, then you have no authority figure. You have no disciplinarian. You have no role model. 
and you combine that with the teachers union and poor schools and therefore the answer is to have charter schools school choice vouchers viable private academies religious instruction uh, parochial school alternatives homeschooling for people to cluster around people qualified to teach it and a social campaign to encourage not rap music not the the creed and the credo that you hear in hip-hop but to go back to the black culture of the 1950s when fatherhood was prized and honored in the nuclear family and try to uh, try to encourage the intact two-parent families now which one will they take <laughs> and which one will likely we hear in the media i don't think it will be choice two yeah. that will be called racist in other words, the approach that's not racist and has some chance of success will be called racist. And the approach that is racist, that these kids can't possibly learn math and it's all not that important. And the teachers unions are will not be called racist. And that's where we are. And this has been going on for a half century. Right. And uh, I don't see any solution until members of the black community and I don't even like that word black community I don't want to put the onus on any black person. they're no more obligated to be a collective than I am I don't think of the white community I don't have much in common to tell you the truth with the left wing apparatus right. on the California coast so I don't feel responsible for them so I wouldn't ask that of anybody else but till the leaders self-acclaimed self-identified leaders of the black community uh break with tradition i don't see any hope yeah i don't the more yeah. money you pour in there the less i mean i we we did our taxes not too long ago and i can tell you if you're in california and you're middle upper middle class and you look at your gasoline taxes your sales taxes, your property taxes, your Social Security and Medicare taxes, your federal income taxes, and your taxes in California that can hit 13.3 on a portion of your income, then you're paying about 60% of your income to the government. And this is what you get, a multi-billion dollar program where it's not one single person can do rudimentary math, and yet the medicine or the proper corrective to it is considered worse than the malady. And when you get to that point in history or into a, a crisis, when the solution that you know might have a chance of working is deemed worse than the problem, right? there's no hope. Yeah, the I don't city, have any hope at all. I have uh, no hope. I grew uh, up, when I came of age, I was about 11 years old and I watched the television in my house, a black and white TV, and I heard Lyndon Johnson declare war on poverty and the great society. And in my entire subsequently 60 years, I have witnessed affirmative action, equal opportunity, this massive growth in the welfare state. And I understand it's helped. 20% of the elite, and that's, I applaud that, but it's been a dismal failure and it's been counterproductive for the vast majority right. who were impacted by it. Because even the cure, even the, of the options you gave, Victor, 
should these things be strictly on the educational level now? Because the the larger cures are the societal thing, the two parent family, et cetera. I mean, if you're not going to have intact families, it's all it's lost. But uh, even even if you had the charter schools and choice and more parochial options, you still consign maybe half of the students in America to um, to uh, chaos and uh, uh, no education for. Well, there's another we we have no vocational education. So here we have uh, the conservative and the liberal communities. AOC said it yesterday that we need to immediately and they're after they're after Elon Musk because he will not hire essentially illegal aliens. And the point I'm making is that we're we're being told that there's an upside to having eight million illegal entries. And we need to get these illegal aliens amnesty basically right away so they can go to work because we're short of labor. Labor non-participation rate is 63 percent of the available workforce. But nobody is saying we need to have mentorships, tutoring, union apprenticeships for African-American inner cities where we open up technical schools and we train people to be medical technicians, x-ray technicians, plumbers, electricians. It would be a wonderful thing to do. But how can you do that? How can you do that when somebody's going to call you racist or you're not a Actually, you, you know, John Ratzenberger, the yes. Cliff Clavin from and John's a friend. He he. he he, uh, well, I haven't seen him in a couple of years, but he had a house in Milford and uh, he's from Bridgeport, Connecticut originally. And John was very much like Mike Rowe uh, pro- promoting the, the, the trades. John was a carpenter and he did bring, he told me once he brought that up, but he was in mostly a, a black audience and, and addressed the vocational benefits because let's face it, you're, you can get your PhD and be a sociology, you know, uh, uh, get your PhD sociology and you're not going to have a job. You can be a welder and making one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. So yeah, you can be an electrician. You can be a plumber. You can be a sheetrock installer. Yeah. You can be a long haul trucker. You can do all that without being part of the one point eight or one point nine trillion dollar student loan debt and without wasting your 20s with three units here and two units here and three, you know, you graduate right. 10 years or eight years. Yeah. That, and, that, and have a mortgage not, to pay off. I know that a, my problem, I guess, is that I don't want to be cynical, but in a lot of capacities on boards, philanthropic boards or in lending my name to certain organizations that were philanthropic yeah. or talking to groups, I've seen this now for 50 years. And it's not working. I mean, there's individual successes. And as I said, there's enormous gain in black aggregate um, income. But when you look at the inner city and you look at the crime rate and the violence of inner city shootings and one parent household and fatherlessness, that solution cannot come from the outside. It has to come from within that community. And it right. either has to be spiritual or it has to be, right. I don't know, transformative. It has to be something and you're not seeing it because what you're seeing is the Al Sharpton cadre blaming other people for self-induced pathologies. And no one can 
from outside that community can say or critique inner city culture without being called names and having their reputations ruined. And so people have just said, live and let live. And after George Floyd, there was a concentrated effort and it was multidimensional. So if you turn on the television, I look, I turned on the television yesterday on a, a Friday evening for three hours to watch movies. And I can tell you, Jack, that almost 50% of the commercials represent about 12% of the population. Oh, yeah. Wow. African-American. Yeah. And almost every single one, the old racist step and fetch it character is some white person. Right. So that he doesn't understand how to use a computer. So a black person has to teach him or he he has a he has a medical problem. So a black doctor instructs him. So it's a good hearted effort to change the derogatory perception of blacks. And as I said before, we went from proportional representation to repertory. So Stanford University thinks it's doing its part by restricting the white admissions to 20%. And the universities today will allow to have racist, racial graduation separation, racial dorm separation, racial self-space separation, to the extent that you can even pick in some campuses the racial background of your roommate, all contrary to the 1965 Civil Rights Act. Okay. And in the last three years, of this new approach, I haven't seen a decrease in inner city shootings and in inner city crime. And in fact, if you look at the statistics to the extent you can even get access to them of interracial crime, which is rare or hate crimes, there has not there's been an increase in black perpetrators. We saw a case the other day of a Hispanic person and a black teenager that bragged that they would not have any consequences for deliberately running over an, a retired policeman in Las Vegas, just killed him. And they kind of laughed it off. And that is every single day. And what I'm suggesting is not stereotype anybody, but I'm saying that whatever the approach before George Floyd or whatever the approach after George Floyd it does have advantages for the elite minority community who really didn't need the help in the first place. But for the other half of the minority community, it has no effect whatsoever that I can see unless somebody can say, "You're." I, I resent that, Victor. I have statistics that show that uh, black fatherlessness is decreasing that two-parent households in the black community are increasing, that inner-city math, science, and uh, verbal scores are skyrocketing, and that the black crime rate has just fundamentally dipped in every category, including interracial crime and hate crimes, which are rare, but nevertheless, they're sensationalized in the media sometimes. So I don't see it. I well, think it'd be, it'd be impossible to see these things are so tied up with religiosity or irreligiosity and the increasing irreligiousness of America is mani manifested in these other ways. And what's the where's where's the, uh, the, the the lessons to be virtuous? Right? And there's, no, have, there's no psychic. There's no material. There's no social or cultural reward in being virtuous. You're a fool. That's what we're told. And think about it. 
if you're in India or South Korea and you want to be an American and you apply, you're a fool. You're going to wait seven years. And somebody who says, screw that, I'm going to fly to Mexico City and go across the border and I'll be working very quickly in the United States and I will get amnesty within five years. That's the smart guy and the stupid person plays by the rules. And the same thing in college admissions. If you're a white working class kid from Modesto, California, and you have a 4.4 with GP, you know, with AP classes, right. and you've got, even though it's optional, you took the SAT and you've got a 99 percentile and you're an Eagle Scout and you apply to Stanford or Berkeley, you're not going to get in. However, if you can say that your grandmother was Native American or your grandfather was Hispanic, even though you have no association with that legacy in your daily lives and no one knows it except you, you may get in. And yeah. that creates cynicism. Yeah. And the person that plays by the rules feels that there's nothing there. And we can go down a lot of other instances in this society where that seems to be true. And that that's why people are angry. And that's why they turn to Donald Trump. That's why they turn to MAGA. That's why they turn to all of these things. And it's not just the so-called white community. You're going to see a lot of people in the Latino and black communities who say, you know what? Don't group me in as in a stereotypical way. I'm an individual. I'm just as an individual as anybody else. And I'm sick and tired of the way that you collectivize us and suggest that we're all victims and we're impotent. And I, I, if this continues, we're on the on the eve of, uh, I think, of a counter-revolution, a, a, a really, I don't mean violent, but I mean a, a counter-revolution where we sweep away all of these orthodoxies that are just so pernicious and nihilistic because they're not working. And everybody knows, it. you know what it reminds me? When I was in high school and college, every remember the May Day Parade in Moscow? Oh, yeah. And you right. get Kosygin or Brezhnev or one of these uh, geriatrics. <laughs> yeah. And they would yeah. sit on that dais, the, the reviewing right. stand, and they had all of those huge medals with these stars and coronas that were gold and their, their chest full of medals. And then they had all these missiles that went by and tanks. And this was the Communist Party and they play the Communist anthem and everything. And and they were all cheating. I mean, they were all nobody believed in it. They were had their DACA in the Black Sea or they they were trying to get dollars from the West. It was just a rotten system and it was about ready to collapse. Well, I think the whole liberal project is like that. Everybody says diversity. There's three sects, but nobody believes it. Everybody says the border is secure. Nobody believes it. Everybody thinks that these cosmetics, uh, the corporate world, whether it's Disney with transgenderism or TV commercials with the black community, these are all going to solve the problems. But nobody believes it. And I think we're going to have to get to the point where we just start looking at people as individuals again. Yeah. That's the way I do it. I don't consider what a person looks like as very essential to who they are. It should be incidental. I appreciate that personally. Richard. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't collectivize right, right, I know. the I, fact that most of the people that my wife and I see in a community that's 90 percent Hispanic, it doesn't really register to me. I just assume that 
On one side of my farm, there's somebody who's a Sikh. On the other side, there's someone who's Mexican-American. On the other side, there's somebody who's Mexican-American. There's on the other side, there's somebody who's Sikh. And on the other side, there's Mexican-American. So that's the people I see at my house. And when I go into town, I don't say to myself, oh, I'm white. Yeah. Where's a white person I can talk to? I don't care. Nobody cares. Let's huddle over here. As long as everybody's American and and as long as everybody's American is on the same page of decorum and values and traditions, it doesn't matter. But when I go over to Stanford during the week, it does matter because they artificially imprint a tribalism to separate and divide people. And all of a sudden you're tense. You don't have to be careful what you say. You have to be careful. This person can take offense. This person, this, this. It's a very artificially retribalized environment. And it's for advantages for certain people who know how to use the system. Exactly. That's where that's where the revolution will come from. We've come to the conclusion, finally, firmly, we're acknowledging that this is all about you enriching yourselves at our expense. I I would say everybody go look at a tape. I think it was on Powerline today. Did you see it? Steve Hayward and Heather McDonald were at a Federalist meeting at Berkeley, and she was speaking about uh, repertory admissions. And I spoke there about a year and a half ago at, uh, to Steve Hayward. I think John Yu sponsors it, the two of them. Yeah. And I could not believe it. Heather went through all of the data of admissions to elite universities and some an, an African-American young man, elite, attacked her. And she didn't back down. She just very politely said, you keep saying white discrimination and I would like you to document to me very quickly what the racist encounters you encounter every day because it wasn't an admission and getting in here and then she showed the data of sat or lsat and gpa versus white versus asian versus black versus latino and so she's used the word black discrimination and she said there has been discriminatory policies that have favored you And now you're angry and you say it's racist, but would you like it to be neutral? Would that make you feel better? And then she's and then she just, you know, she just said the problem is not here. The problem is what you just mentioned. It's K through 12, because by the time you apply to college and you haven't got a competitive education, there's no way in the world that an affirmative action or repertory admission is going to help you. Right. All it's going to do is confirm a a negative stereotype. And that's what's happening among all of these elite universities. None of them. There's not enough elite minorities to fill the demand uh, for 80% non-white student bodies. You have to either abolish the SAT, which they're doing, or you have to not count the GPA in the sense that one school is going to be just like another. You can't say that Sacred Heart is more competitive and harder to get an A than Selma High School. You can't do that. You'll just right. have to say whatever the inter- whatever the grade point and then your essay. And you're going to let people in. And then the professors are going to have to either inflate the grades, water down the curriculum, or keep standards and be called systemically racist. Yeah. And that's what higher education is becoming. And everybody knows it. And the employers know it. And if this continues... I will make a prediction that in five years, 
if this continues, a BA from Princeton or Stanford will not be worth much at all. It'll just be a joke. And something like St. Thomas Aquinas or Hillsdale will be the new Harvard. Yeah. At least, maybe not quite publicly, but as far as employers are concerned. Yeah. If you want to hire somebody that's very hardworking and had a rigorous education and is inductive and knows a lot about history and language and philosophy and can be trained, then you will go to those schools. Let me, schools can, I, like can I tell you, I went to, uh, you know, I wrote a piece for National Review, Review a couple of years ago in um, Thomas Aquinas's 50th anniversary, and I went to their campus in New, New England up in Massachusetts, and I sat in on a few classes. It's eight in the morning, and they're fully engaged. They're reading Aristotle, the original, and they're talking yes. about time, and everyone is talking. The teachers are not lecturing the students. Uh, it was really, for me, a dramatic scene relative to the kind of education received that I had received 40 years earlier. But yeah, these they are academically rigorous at some of these schools. And well, I agree I, with you, Victor. I, they will shine. They will outshine. I, I know it. I know. Yeah. I just got back from Hillsdale College. I talked to numerous students for eight days. And I've taught there for almost 20 years. And I can guarantee you that if you take put your prejudices aside and you're just empirical and you talk to a Hillsdale senior and you talk to a Stanford senior, there's no comparison as far as the educational level. Maybe in innate intelligence, they're the same. I don't know. It's not interesting to me. It's no right. I just want to know what they know. And they are not receiving a competitive education They're at Stanford. They're receiving a therapeutic education. Oh, yeah. The world it's is, a great line. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, the, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not your fault. You're a victim. There's a racist white hierarchy. And then they're going to turn them out and they're going to think they're going to be jobs. And believe me, if you talk to Silicon Valley grandees, and I have talked to a lot of them, and you get them off the record, they will tell you that they would prefer a Georgia Tech or Texas A&M electrical engineer BA to a Stanford BA. And they will tell you that in terms of the degree, a Stanford BA versus a Hillsdale BA or even a Cal State BA, they're almost the same. And there's no and they understand why that is. And yeah. they will not be quoted. And they will even give tests to people who are applying to jobs off the record because they do not believe that transcript, especially in the age of no SAT admittance, means much. Yeah. And so this is what's the tragedy about it is these universities think that they're helping the underprivileged. But by destroying meritocracy and lowering standards to create a quote unquote diverse, they're going to encourage a stereotype that that people are not competitive in that college with other colleges. Yeah. And well, the value of the brand is dissipating. And uh, you're right. At some point it will. It will. It's OK uh, in la la land of academia because there's no consequences. you got a tenured faculty. You've got a 35 billion, 40 billion dollar endowment. It's yeah. all la la land. You go out in the real world where it's cutthroat and one company is competing with another company. It's a little different. Uh, yeah. Not calling about the big corporations like Disney that have overhead they can blow or, you know, Anheuser-Busch and their budget, they can blow a billion here and a billion there for their transgendered agenda or something. I'm talking about startups, the average company, they can't and they want the best competitive 
job lap it can, and best train for the buck. And they're not getting it from these elite colleges in the last three years. There's no way they can get it because they understand that there is no SAT for admissions. There is no comparative evaluation of a high school transcript. And most of the admissions criteria were based on non-academic uh, criteria, the essay or, you know, if you, in Stanford, if you say be a Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter a hundred times in your essay, you get in. Yeah. So it, it's a joke and it's going to have consequences. And these universities are then are going to start to wake up and they're going to go into high speed mode and to correct. And they can't because they created the monster and their Dr. Frankenstein. As soon as they start to self-correct and say, I think we better bring back the SAT. I think we better look at the quality of a high school GPA. Uh, they can get 10%, 12% Latino and black competitive students, no problem, proportional representation. And they can get by artificially limit, limiting 67% of the admissions to so-called white. And maybe they can get away with the same thing with Asians, but not proportional, rep, not repertory admissions. Right. You, they can't do it the way they're doing it. Well, Victor, we have to wrap up with some a few things. One is uh, I did want to say, you know, uh, about John Ratzenberger, just to conclude that, that when, when he made that uh, proposal to kids look into the trades, he was vilified. Uh, for being racist and who isn't vilified for being racist today. So that was one thing. Everybody is. I've been yeah. called that. Yeah, Everybody's just, been take called a punch. Racist. You got when everybody's take a punch. racist, no one's racist. Right. Second thing, I uh, do appreciate uh, the increased number of folks who are subscribing to the to what I write, Civil Thoughts. It's the free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil, where we are intent on strengthening civil society. I I share a dozen plus uh, uh, recommended readings, great articles and essays I've come across in previous weeks, the previous week, link an excerpt. There's no fee. It's free. There's, we're not selling the names. It's, it's just goodwill. So go to SybilThoughts.com, sign up, please. And thank you. And final, Victor, as our listeners know, we do read comments that people leave on your website, victorhanson.com, The Blade of Perseus, or on iTunes and Apple, where you can leave comments and rate the show. Thanks for everyone who does that. 4.9 plus rating for The Victor Davis Hanson Show. Uh, here's one comment left the other day. It's called Common Sense Awakens. Dr. Hansen provides a detailed and concise overview of what's happening in the American psyche of social, political, and real world life. For too long, too many Americans have become complacent with everyday life, so long as what's going on doesn't impact them. You provide the practical vantage point of just how much we need to be more aware of the damage being perpetrated upon our way of life. As a conservative American, I'm concerned about the world around me and the detrimental impact upon my children and grandchildren. There must be some type of awakening that's never been achieved before, even compared to the American Revolution or the Civil War. In my opinion, it's become that serious and threatening to the future of our country and society as a whole. Thank you for your timely analysis and insight into what is happening around us. And that is signed by RLB 1973-1. Thank you, RLB, uh, for that comment and others who leave comments. Victor, thanks for the 
boatload of wisdom you shared today. And we thank our listeners for listening. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks and bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. 